again. Father God, illumine, illuminate our hearts to hear and apply Your holy word. Bless my preparation and my delivery now. And may we hear it and obey and love You more. In Jesus' name, Amen. For men of a certain age, one of the heroes was John Wayne and his tough guy characters that he played in movies who stood up to anybody in the Old West who needed standing up to. The next generation, I think, had Clint Eastwood and his lone gunman characters who rode into town to restore justice to those who were beat down by the local thugs. My generation had John Rambo and diehards John McClane. Tough guys who took on whole terrorist groups or whole armies by themselves. All they had was their weapons and their muscles. And that's what we looked up to. Those guys were manly men. They usually walked away from blown up buildings just exuding manliness and heroism. And then we had the 90s that gave us friends, Ross, Chandler, Joey, hanging out in coffee shops. It just wasn't the same. We wanted the lone crusader for justice who didn't need anything else. He didn't need other people. He didn't need to talk about his feelings. And some of that is very good. There is a very godly instinct inside of every man to be tough and to fight for what is right. To protect the helpless and abused. Right? But there is also something not so godly in those pictures. In men that makes us want to be loners. Spurring friendship. And, and not letting people get to know us beneath the veneer of strength that we project. When I was in my early 20s, I went to a Christian music festival called Cornerstone. It's out in the cornfields of Illinois. Uh, the most extreme music you can imagine. All the piercings and uh, mohawks and everything you'd ever want. We're out there. It was a fun festival. And I didn't know a whole lot about Cornerstone. I didn't know a whole lot. I found out that it's run by a group called Jesus People USA. And I found out that the Jesus People USA located in Chicago wasn't, it was, it was a kind of a church. It was part of a evangelical covenant church. But it was more than a church. It was a way of life. A commune where everyone lived together. They called themselves an intentional community. And they lived and they supported one another. And they ran ministries for the homeless and for battered women and for troubled teens. 
And they lived together, they served together, and then they rocked hard at the festival together. And I was sort of uh, presented that picture of Christian community. And as I thought through the implications of what that kind of life would look like, I wondered if there was some godly middle ground between lone, rugged individualism of those role models I had seen from Hollywood and this very close daily living and sharing everything. So as we turn this morning to the tiny book of Philemon, which is right before the larger book of Hebrews, near the end of the New Testament, as we read the first seven verses of this letter, it's going to be split into three sermons in the month of November. Let's see how the Apostle Paul exhorted his friends and his partners in ministry. Men and women alike need to think through how a Christian lives his or her life in cool detachment or in close-knit community where they bear each other's burdens and let others minister to them. Where they rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn and encourage the growth and maturity of Christ's church. So let's read the first seven verses together. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Appia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Philemon is a great book to study right after Colossians, as we are doing. Because Philemon, the man, lived in Colossae. And we've already met Archippus that was mentioned there in verse 2, back in Colossians 4.17. Paul says, say to Archippus, take heed to thy ministry. We've already met him. Both books were written around the same time in the early 60s A.D. And as you see in verse 1, this is one of Paul's prison epistles. Uh, he's hanging out, writing letters in jail, accompanied by Timothy. Philemon apparently was a church leader, had a church in his own home. And he most likely had been converted by Paul's ministry because in verse 19, Paul says, you, you owe me even your own self. And we think that's a, an allusion to Philemon coming to Christ under Paul's teaching. Apphia who Paul calls 
Our sister is probably his wife. And Archippus is probably their son. Though we can't know that for sure. That seems to be the consensus. So we have this family that Paul's writing to. And Philemon has been called a personal correspondence. But you see in verse 2 that Paul addresses the letter to the entire house church. So it's not that different from the rest of Paul's letters that he wrote to whole churches. It is the shortest of Paul's letters, and it does not have a lot of doctrinal teaching. And essentially, the letter is a plea to Philemon to take back his runaway slave, Onesimus, who has come to be very involved in Paul's ministry. I'm not going to deal with the issue of slavery, of what indentured servitude meant uh, this morning, because we don't actually meet Onesimus yet. And the actual request from Paul is not contained in these opening seven verses. But instead, we have here a summary of how Paul feels about Philemon. Now, some would see this as Paul's insincerely flattering Philemon right before he asks him a hard task. Others would say, well, that's, that's just a good manager of people who would, who would start off with uh, points of praise before he moved into points of criticism. And that's very possible. But I don't think there's any reason to think that Paul is being insincere or manipulative here. And as he so often does in his letters, he lists what he appreciates about the recipients before he delves into the main contents of what he wants to discuss. And apparently with Philemon, there is a lot to admire. The first thing we see about him, what I've labeled in your outline, is he is a double threat church member. Now in case you were wondering, that is a compliment. Uh, in football terminology, or maybe baseball, when a player can do two things well, we call him a double threat. He can be a cornerback and cover a receiver, and he can return kick. That's a, that's a double threat. So let's see what we mean here. Verses 4 and 5. Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Imagine what it must have taken to be someone whom the Apostle Paul raved about. And this man, with so many gifts, planted so many churches, witnessed in the face of great adversity, persecuted for his faith, what would it take to impress Paul? We certainly know the kind of people who angered Paul. He had a lot of hard words for false teachers, for people who tried to impose the law on the new Gentile converts, for those who tried to discredit his ministry, and for those who flaunted their sins in the church. Paul fought a lot of battles, and we read in his letters how disappointed he can be in people who could have been great allies in ministry with him. But here, Paul has no hard words 
of rebuke or correction for Philemon, either in his actions or his theology. Philemon is one of those guys that Paul is constantly thanking God for having as a partner in ministry. And rather than very general praise, Paul says specifically that Philemon's love and faith toward both the Lord Jesus and to his fellow Christians are cause for his thanks. Now this is the double threat that I'm referring to. Nothing gladdens the heart of a pastor more than a godly man or woman in the congregation who also truly loves other people. It's easy to find pious people who know their theology pretty well, but who maybe slip in and slip out, want to be left alone. Pastor's job to love the, the sheep, the flock. I'll just learn. But don't get involved. And it's also fun, easy to find very social people who love being with other people and have lots of friends in the church, but maybe their eyes glaze over when you start teaching or when you ask for teachers. But to find someone who's passionate about loving God and loving those around Him, those people are worth their weight in gold. And I do thank God that He has brought so many of those types of people to Potomac Hills. Paul continues. And he has a prayer for Philemon. In verse 6, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I think many of us, when we first hear that, at least the beginning, think, oh, okay, now he's, he's sort of gone from how you treat people in your church to witnessing, evangelism. And certainly our, our minds, uh, at least mine, translates that phrase, sharing your faith to evangelism, witnessing. But that's not quite what Paul's talking about here. Verse 6, the Greek word that Paul uses for sharing is koinonia. And that's most easily defined as fellowship. But it's much deeper than potluck dinners and coffee hour chats between the service. Much deeper. Koinonia is the mutual identification of Christians. We're all bound together in a mutual bond. It includes the ideas of generosity, partnership, and close relationship. It's the idea that we are family with any other believer. And we need to try to nurture our family and love and understand them the best we can. I remember in the churches I grew up in, we had, the, the adults had K-groups. And I, what's the, what's the Sam, and it, somebody explained to me, that's koinonia groups. And that just confused me more, of course. But they explained to me that we want to start small groups that study the scriptures together, but then also share their lives together. That's my first exposure to that word, koinonia. 
And But unfortunately, I don't think you can always program that. You can't just slap that. We're going to start deep fellowship. Go. Sign up. Uh, that's something that's got to rise up somewhat organically. A few commentators suggest different readings of this verse. It, it can be a little confusing the way it's written or translated in the ESV. So let me read two other possible ways to read this. Listen carefully. N.T. Wright suggested, I am praying that the mutual participation which is proper to the Christian faith you hold may have its full effect in your realization of every good thing that God wants to accomplish in us to lead us into the fullness of Christian fellowship, that is, of Christ. William Barclay, another commentator, says the best sense of this verse is, it is my prayer that your way of generously sharing all that you have will lead you more and more deeply into the knowledge of the good things which lead to Christ. That means that we learn about Christ by giving to others. It means that by emptying ourselves, we are filled with Christ. It means to be open-handed and generous-hearted. Generous with our lives. That's the surest way to learn more and more of the wealth of Christ. I don't want to get too far, and I, and I don't want to paint throughout this sermon a, a very rosy picture of Christian fellowship. Because at some point we have to acknowledge the sad fact that Christians hurt each other. And Christian fellowship doesn't always look so nice. It can be pretty ugly. Many of us and many people I've talked to have tried to get involved in churches only to be hurt, abused, disillusioned with other Christians. You've heard expressions like the Christian army is the only one that shoots its wounded. There's some truth. I've heard of people who would rather hang out with gang members, addicts, anyone else, but to go to church. That would just make me feel worse. Make me feel judged. We can't work through this text and present every Christian Fellowship, all Christian fellowship is wonderful situations because there's a lot of pain that comes from fellow believers, not always intentional. And I can't solve all your problems and questions here, but I have to remind you that God still designed this process. This idea that a believer is saved and then he lives out his life in a local body of Christians. And that that is difficult and challenging and occasionally hurtful. But it's also how we grow. If all our interactions with fellow believers were fun, cheerful times, we might never learn to work through conflict. We might not get to exercise forgiveness or humility in asking for forgiveness. 
We might even start to think that the church is primarily where we get our spiritual life from and not from God. I think it's a healthy thing to realize how messed up the people around you are because you're messed up too. And I'm messed up too. And I think it's sometimes hard to accept how different people are and to work through that too. Not everyone is going to look like me, vote like me, spend their money like me, prioritize their lives like me, school their children like me. In so many ways, we are different and we challenge each other. And we give each other opportunities to extend grace. And then we understand the kingdom of God much better. I believe living in close fellowship and community, as the end of verse 6 says, helps us to discover the fuller knowledge of our faith. I don't think you can sit on the fringes or stay in an ivory tower just soaking up knowledge. I mean, you could memorize large parts of the Scripture. But I don't think you're going to understand it all until you dive into being part of fellow believers' lives. Because God never intended the Christian life just to be about study. Certainly not to be lived alone. And finally, Paul now has that prayer for Philemon. But he comes back and says again how much his heart has been refreshed by Philemon. Verse 7 says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. I have a file in my filing cabinet at work labeled Letters Important and Personal. And when life and ministry get rough, and then I question why I do what I do, I go and I read some of those. And it's filled with people like Mary Cooks and Catherine Pugh. If just <laughs> I knew I was going to break down at some point. <laughs> I thought it'd be a little later. Continually encouraged me as a pastor. And I very tangibly receive a refreshing in my heart. But my heart can be refreshed in so many different ways by church members. When I hear of church members inviting new people into their homes. When I hear of believers sharing their faith with friends and coworkers. When I hear of a teen who stood up to the ungodly pressures of the teen culture when someone steps up to fill a ministry need. Philemon brought that kind of joy and refreshment to Paul as Paul sat in prison. And he heard that Philemon was refreshing the hearts of those around him. Tonight, you're going to, if you come to the memorial service, you will see a slideshow we've put together with a lot of pictures of our beloved Bonnie. 
There are pictures of her with close friends, uh, family members, students, church friends, pictures of her traveling. You'll see a picture of her helping build a house with Habitat for Humanity this past summer. And a picture of her running field games at a church picnic. What you won't see is pictures of her writing all the Bible study curriculum for the Esther and Genesis series studies. Or of teaching high school Sunday school in the summer. Or being on the rotation for teaching children's church once a month. Or getting down on the carpet in the nursery to work with the toddlers, the infants. Or coming in to clean the church office. Or co-leading the women's evening Bible study. Or being the very first person to greet the Motmans and the Nelsons. Probably many more. Those were just the ones I heard of this week. She was the first person that greeted them when they walked in the church and then took them out to lunch afterwards. One of Bonnie's closest friends told me that Bonnie's philosophy was that you had to imagine that what you did for the church was the only thing that happened. So if all you did was show up and, and give money, the church would have a budget, but who would watch the kids? Who would teach? Who would write small group study material? And she lived that out. What it meant to serve her church family. She found so many different ways to do that. And my point is not to canonize Bonnie as a saint. We point to Christ and His perfection. But Bonnie was a beautiful illustration of someone who heeded the call to serve one another. She did a lot of things behind the scenes. And she pitched in in so many areas where it would have been easy for her to say, no, I teach all week. I'm not teaching on Sunday. Or I don't have kids. I'm not going to do the nursery. She didn't. She jumped in identified areas where she could help and gave unselfishly of her time and talent. And that's sort of how it works with the church. If you show up expecting to have deep friendships without investing much of your time and energy, you may be very disappointed. I've seen it. But as you attend events, as you volunteer with what your gifts line up with, as you open your home, as you start to live in community, you refresh others' hearts. And you are blessed yourself. And I hope that you don't just hear this as browbeating everyone to sign up on all the lists we have. Although we could use a treasurer. I want you to be involved because it will enrich your life, your faith, and it will bless others. When you become involved, you become invested. And as you give of your time, utilize your talents, you get friends who will go to the wall for you. You have people that will write you notes of encouragement who will help you when you move, when you go through a divorce or a death in the family. People will go on vacation with you. 
babysit your kids, write your job references and college recommendations, who will testify in court for you, tell stories at your birthday party, or give a eulogy at your funeral. If you'd rather skip all that and not have deep friendships, you'll be missing out on a huge blessing. And you might need to ask yourself how committed to God's kingdom you are. Now, I know we're not all in a great position to serve right now. There's limitations. And our, our gifts, our areas we want to serve in don't always match up with the church or other groups. That's okay. File this away. That we want you to serve wherever you are, wherever you go from here. My prayer for my kids is not always that they succeed the way we usually define it. Going to college, getting a good job, solid family, all that. Those are fine. But to love God and love His church and the spread of His kingdom. That's my true prayer. But before you have Christian fellowship and service, there's something very key you need. And we can't skip this. You need Christ. Christ is our model for the ultimate servant, but He is so much more than that, right? The key to Christian fellowship is that believers are joined in a common faith. Knit together by the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins and placed us in a community together. Now, I have a lot in common with a lot of different groups. right? I have affinity with Baylor University alumni or with people from Pittsburgh or with guys who play basketball, golf, Musicians, twins, a lot of different people that I can identify with. But none of those associations are as important as those who are my brothers and sisters in Christ for two reasons. One, none of them are based on something as important as the salvation of my soul. And none of them are guaranteed relationships that will last through all eternity. If you want what Paul wishes for in verse 3, back up in the text, remember he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You must acknowledge that Jesus is your Savior because His dying in your place is the only way that God will not punish you with death and eternal separation from Himself. Let me read again what we sang, verse 2 of Rock of Ages. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. In other words, if I was on fire all the time for you, Lord, could my tears forever flow if I was always emotional and ready for the Lord? If I tried to do it myself, all for sin could not atone. None of that works. Thou must save, and thou alone. 
When Christ becomes Lord of your life, all your past, present, and future sins are forgiven. And you are given grace and the peace that knowing you will be spending eternity in heaven with Him brings. And a foretaste of heaven on earth is the fellowship and communion that fellow believers share among themselves. Let's take a minute to pray silently and then I'll close. Lord God, thank you for this new book, this study, the book of Philemon. Thank you for Colossians and the great picture of Jesus that we had in it. And the reminder that he is above all things. All things hold together in him. We are saved by His death and His resurrection. We are raised with Him. We praise You for that, God. We thank You that You designed the order of salvation so that You call us to Yourself. You change our hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh that beat for You. We are changed from old creations who are dead in sin to new creatures in Christ. And thank You that we don't have to live as new creations alone. But that You place us amidst other Christians who lift us up. Yes, we, we challenge, we exhort, we can confront. It's not always an easy thing or a comforting thing. But God, You call us to be part of each other's lives anyways. And this church has been wonderful for that. May we continue to understand the relational aspects of our ministry. Every member, not just the staff and the officers, we would hear that call to live together, share our lives together. And in doing so, Refresh the hearts of the saints. Thank You, Lord, for the example of believers, both in the Scriptures and in our own church and our lives, who gave so richly of their time and their talents and their treasure. Lord, challenge us and 
Move us. Teach us and change us. In Jesus' holy name, amen.